I noticed after last week's message that some of you struggled to keep eye contact with me. Maybe it's because I was too transparent. Maybe you needed the week to process and uh, just to handle that. And I have good news for you this morning. While I will be gone the following two weeks, you will have ample time to process the message this week. And so I, I pray that that's profitable for you. I will tell you something. In the wake of being more transparent, more vulnerable than I have ever allowed myself to be in a public setting, it was both good and bad. Monday, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, I was devastatingly insecure. I asked Michelle, did I share too much? Did I make myself too vulnerable? Did I practice enough pastoral wisdom to not celebrate my failures, but to point people towards God? Fortunately, the busyness of this week, getting ready for the BMA of Arkansas's annual meeting and everything that comes with that preparation, um, distracted me sufficiently. I nearly forgot about how insecure I felt by the time Thursday rolled around. And in forgetting about that, it wasn't until yesterday that I was praying and reflecting upon the week and, and asking God to show me where I worked for Him, and where I failed Him, where I want to be different, that I realized that there was good that came from that vulnerability as well. Maybe not in your lives, but I felt more myself at the end of the week than, than I told Michelle than I have felt in seven years. I felt more comfortable with who, where God's brought me to. I felt more confident in who God has made me. Not by uh, the redemptive works of myself, but through His redemptive grace. We've been talking over the past three weeks about how lying affects our lives. More importantly, we've been looking at a particular narrative in Genesis, the beginning of the life of Abram, where God establishes first His promises with Abram to establish him as the father of the nation of Israel. How fear causes, even after this miraculous event, Abram's faith to falter. How it leads him in the wake of famine to go into Egypt. How it causes him to lie. We read this narrative and today we will be looking at the final part of this series. What are the consequences of Abram's actions? Before we look at our text... I want to make sure that we are thinking in terms of the original audience. Who was the original audience for the book of Genesis? Was it Abram's immediate children? No. The book of Genesis was most likely written by Moses, given to the people of Israel at the time that they were coming out of Egypt. 
When we read the story of Abram's faltering faith, we must consider what it would be like to be sitting on the foothills of Mount Sinai or in front of the waters of Meribah. And we must consider what it would have been like to hear this account retold. As we are sitting there and our neighbors and the people around us begin grumbling as they are saying, Moses has led us out of slavery in Egypt, but would it not have been better for us to have stayed in Egypt? Here there is no food, there is no water. Wouldn't it be better to have died at the spear of an Egyptian slave bearer than it would have been to have died of the slow process of dehydration and starvation? Remember what happened to Abram when he feared. Remember the consequences of his lie. God, who, like Abram, in a miraculous revelation, gave Abram the covenant in Genesis chapter 12, has just delivered us from the hands of bondage of Pharaoh. He has parted the Red Sea for us. He has shown us through His very actions, that He loves us. And here we are, and you are grumbling because you are afraid. We will not be like Abram this time. We will learn from our father's mistake. Fear will not cause us to lie, to disobey God, to dishonor God, to not trust God. Lies have a tendency when we begin to tell them. This is what's so insidious about sin when we really look at how it acts upon our lives. It's not just one thing. But lies, once we allow ourselves to become dishonest, to become deceptive, to do any of these things, they begin to infiltrate other areas of our life. We justify them. You're looking at me this morning like you don't believe me. We do. We justify lying. When people lie, they say it was just a white lie. Well, I just, I let them believe that because it was more convenient than explaining the truth. I didn't have time to wade through all of the details. What happens when we do that? I told you last week that lying was a major part of my young and youthful life. Not that I'm not youthful now. You can see the vigor in me, obviously. They can get out of control. When I was growing up, after school, the place I went to hang out was the ditch. That's what we called it. I rode my bike down the hill. There were two friends that I stopped at. First, I went to Michael Stark's house, knocked on his door, got Michael. Then I walked my bike down to Brad Zasky's house with Michael. We got Brad Zasky, and then we went down to the ditch, and um, we stole some lighters from our parents, and we caught leaves on fire. Spent the whole afternoon doing that. It was awesome. Those of you not familiar with what it's like to grow up as a little boy, or it's been so long that you have forgotten... Little boy narratives are nothing if they're not epic tales. We were always on a mission, living extravagant and and wonderful fantasies. We built tree houses, not real tree houses. We didn't buy nails and screws. We simply found an overgrown pine tree or or magnolia tree where the branches hadn't been trimmed and they sat on the ground so that we could clear it out and just walk in. 
That's the coolest fort in the world. But epics aren't complete unless there's an enemy. I don't know if you know this, but I like to tell stories. Between the three of us hanging out day after day, every single day, cold, warm, didn't matter. We always told stories and we had convinced each other that we had an enemy. You get three people working together where they're telling these stories or really working each other up. Like, hey, did you, what did you see about this? And what did you see about this? And we're just poking and prodding each other. And as the time's going, we've convinced ourselves that we had this enemy. Lying was a major part of my life, not just storytelling. Let me tell you about the time I took it too far. Brad, Michael, and I were hanging out. We were worked up, discussing this. I made an excuse that I might leave briefly just to run home, come back. Instead of going home, I rode my bike to Michael Stark's house. With all the confidence in the world, I simply walked in the front door. I walked into Michael's bedroom. I grabbed a post-it note from his study desk. I wrote, I'm watching you. And I left it on his pillow and left. Probably crossed some boundaries there. It was a hilarious joke for six months. Until Michael told me that his parents had called the cops. That they were really concerned about what had just happened. We can take things too far. Deception isn't just a lie that children, deception isn't just a sin that children fall into. It's something that affects every area of our life. And it comes with consequences. It comes with consequences. Our text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 13. I want to look at verse 2 all the way through the end of the chapter. This is where we find the consequences. Some of them, not all of them, but some of the consequences of Abram's lie in Egypt when he told Sarai, his wife, to say that she was his sister instead of his wife. I invite you to open your Bibles there that you could follow along with me as I read out loud. But before we look to God's Word, let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and this time, for the extra hour of rest that we had, for this good day. Help us, Lord, to worship you as we look at your word and apply it to our lives, not to look at this simply as a narrative of something that happened in the ancient days in the patriarchal era, but get God to take heed of the warning the way that you intended it for the original Jews leaving Egypt the way that it speaks to us as your people, seeing a world gripped with sin, living in fear, justifying our actions. Help us to cling to you because of the warning in the past. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, 
And he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Prizites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they were separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as of the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tents and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. All of God's people said, Now remember that as I'm preaching, you are welcome to say amen. Or that's true if you hear something. That is not just an encouragement to me, but that's an encouragement to the people sitting around you. The first point that I want to make in looking at these consequences is actually skipping past verse 2 and we'll come back to it. Verse 3 begins to show us that the, one of the consequences of lying is that it sets us back spiritually. Notice, after Abram lied to Pharaoh, after he lied in the land of Egypt, after he I think we could argue a case, rebelled against God in leaving for Egypt when God had not told him to go to Egypt. Where does he return? The Bible says he journeyed from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. He went back to where he started. There's a spiritual implication as we consider what lying does to us. It doesn't advance us. It doesn't leave us stationary. It moves us back to where we were with God. Now think about this. 
moving backwards in our relationship with God. As much as we have talked over the past year, uh, our, or our theme for the year, we've said that it is worship. What does it mean to authentically worship God? We've preached through the book of Hebrews. We've considered what it means to mature in our faith. We've thought about what it means to grow in the Lord, to be more earnest in our faithfulness towards Him. These are the encouragements of the New Testament. The spiritual implications of lying, sin, is that it moves us backwards. It takes us from a place of eating solid foods that we would need again to be nursed by milk. It degrades our walk with God. Lying is not something that we have to teach to children, loved ones. We come by it naturally. Children, when they lie, uh, they, they, they naturally struggle to separate fantasy from reality. And so when we watch children grow up, when they tell their first lies, we're compassionate towards them because we understand that to them, they're not trying to tell a lie. They, they simply can't negotiate reality and what is in their mind. That's why they come to us in the night and they say, there's a monster in my closet. It's real to them. Are they telling a lie? Sure they are. I walk in, I've not seen a monster yet. Are they really afraid? They sure are. This is why children get frustrated when expectations aren't clearly set for them. Because when there's gaps left, they fill in the blanks themselves. And when those expectations aren't met, this is what conjures up inside of them those feelings of, of toddler rage. There is no greater force in all of the world than an upset four-year-old. Our spiritual progress with God depends on honesty. From the beginning of our salvation experience, we are told, some of you know this, Romans 10.9, how is it that a person is saved? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That is an act of honesty to confess the truth. Jesus is Lord whether you admit it or not. Jesus is Lord whether you want to acknowledge Him or not. He holds all things in control. The Bible tells us that not a thing is held in motion if it were not by God's will. Confess with your mouth that He is Lord. That's not just an act of making Him Lord of your life. That's an act of acknowledging the truth. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to recognize Him as the authority. To recognize your dependence upon Him. It requires that we recognize our own limitations. It is honestly admitting we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Honesty is more, though, than just a foundational stepping stone to salvation. It is a means by which we mature in our walk with God. I believe that all spiritual maturation is a work of God. The Bible teaches that. You don't grow closer to God without God making you grow closer to Him. But it's a cooperative effort. If you hide from Him as Adam and Eve hid in the garden, you will not mature. 
When you are honest and admit your need for God continually, I believe Paul teaches this not Paul teaches this as more than just a foundational stepping stone to salvation. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he says about himself, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. We must allow our conscience to drive us toward God with continual repentance where it is needed. It is better to admit our faults than to make light of them. It is better to be transparent in where we have failed than to speak in terms of euphemisms, in vagueness, to be trivializing or making smaller than they actually are how we have failed before God. Listen, loved ones, you are older than me. You should know this. I'm not telling you anything new. You can fool the world around you. You can pull the veil over people's eyes. You can even fool yourself into believing that you are telling the truth when you refuse to acknowledge your need for God, when you do not see the imperfections before you. You can fool yourself, but you will never be able to fool God. The core to our relationships, all relationships with individuals, is that there is a foundation of honesty and trust. You can have a good relationship with somebody and lie to them so long as they believe the lie as much as you do. God knows the truth. He is the truth. And without the truth, our relationship with God is damaged. Second, not only does lying set us back spiritually, but unrighteous profit damages relationships. Go back to verse 2. What happened when Abram lied to Pharaoh? Abram became very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Looking back at chapter 12, we find that Pharaoh, after realizing what had happened to him, he dealt well with Abraham. Look at verse 16 of chapter 12. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. We might say, oh, I got you, preacher. Look at this. Abram lied and it was good for him. Do you think God blessed Abraham? Look at all these things that came in the wake of his deceit. He, He got all of this stuff. Look at this wonderful blessing. God obviously endorsed what took place here. Stuff can be a curse. I hope I made the point last week, but just in the event that I missed it, let me draw a connection here. Among those things that Abram received was a female servant. Remember what happened when Abram and Sari got impatient waiting for this multiple uh, descendants that would come from him? And he said, how will I have children? I'm an old man. Sarah's an old woman. And Abram took Sarah's maidservant, a woman named Hagar. A woman, the Bible tells us, was an Egyptian slave. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just play it out. 
Hagar is more significant than just a concubine that Abram took so that he could have children. She, she threatens the very promise of God in the sense that the pure descendants, the pure progeny of Abram that would establish the nation of Israel came through a line that God did not intend for it. Think about the conflict that takes place between whether Isaac or Ishmael would inherit Abram's blessing. Abram had to send his own son away. Does that not sound like a consequence? Play it out just in the immediate text. We don't have to go any further than this. Abram, with all of his livestock, silver and gold, verse 4 tells us, as he came to this place, verse 5 tells us that when Abram was there with all of these flocks and herds, that Lot was also there. And the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was strife between Abram and his nephew Lot. Abram may have received a bunch of things, but don't look at it and say that it was a blessing. Remember the context of this. Look at what this is doing. Abram got a bunch of things, and it caused him to send his family away. We might be able to profit or appear to profit immediately by acting unrighteously, but the consequences are long-lasting. They're detrimental, not just to the lives of our our walk with God, but our ability to minister to the people that God has placed under our care. Lot was placed under Abram's care. He was his nephew. He was his kinsman. Abram had a moral and ethical responsibility to care for him, to provide for him, to watch over him, to shepherd him. He had to send him away. There was strife between them. There have been times where I have been tempted and even acted out of fear, out of a a sense of a lack of control. When I have tried to control circumstances in my life through unrighteous means rather than trusting God. The story I shared with you in our introduction was kind of funny. It was a joke that just got taken too far. When my parents got divorced, I felt like my life was falling apart. I had no sense of control and I didn't want to live with my mom because I I honestly viewed her as a Jezebel because she left my dad. What had happened, let me play this out just so you can understand the picture. My mom did not work my entire life. She never had to. My dad was a provider. In 2008, something happened that affected anyone involved in the construction industry. I don't know if you remember that. Something happened in 2008. My dad couldn't provide the way that he had before. For the first time in my entire life, my mom, out of necessity, had to go and get a job. Six months later, she was leaving my dad. I viewed her as weak. I viewed her as lacking a backbone. I despised her. I had three younger brothers. The youngest hadn't even started school yet. 
You know what my greatest concern was as a teenager watching this happen with my parents? That I might have to live with my mom. And even if I didn't live with my mom, that I wouldn't get to live with my brothers. You've heard a little bit about the way that I grew up, so this shouldn't shock you too much. But it may shock you to know that I was the instigator of this. I went to my dad one night and I said, you're going to lose this unless you take control of the situation. She's going to make me go to her house. I am going to make her regret that decision. If you want my brothers to come with me, you can help. I asked my dad to buy enough weed that it would cross the threshold to be considered a felony. And he did it. And he gave it to his son. I took it to my mom's house. She kept her purse on top of the refrigerator and I tucked it inside of a pocket. And I waited for the timing to be right to grab one of my brothers so that there would be a witness. Couldn't just be me, I knew that wouldn't be suitable. And I said, you know what we should do to this Jezebel? Let's rummage through her thing, see if we can't get some cash. We got our purse down, and as my brother was going through it, he said, what is this? I said, oh, you know what we have to do? We need to go call the police. We walked down the road, called 911. As my family is gathered together for the first time in three months, all of my mom's parents and uncles, they're excited to see us boys. Blue lights started shining through the windows and the knock came at the front door. I sat my plate down and I went and answered it. I said, this is for me. And I told the police officer that my brother and I found in my mom's purse something that concerned us. The police officer asked my mom if she minded him looking through her purse and she had no reason to fear, no, re no thought. He looked through it and found a large quantity of marijuana. He charged my mom. He took my statement. He even pressed me. He said, how did it get there? And I said, I was just looking through the purse trying to find money. Well, why were you doing that? That's not very good. And I said, I know it's not very good, but I'm not very happy with my mom, but I didn't expect to find this. My mom never made me go see her for visitation again. And my relationship with my mom was damaged that day. My relationship with my brothers were damaged that day. There was strife between us. 
unprofit gain, unrighteous gain. Damages our relationships. Just like it did in the life of Abram and Lot when he had to send his nephew away. But it gets worse than that. What happens when these relationships are neglected? Neglect leads to decay. Lot was sent away, and there's kind of this editorial note in verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We find in verse 13 that this place that Lot was led away to was the place of Sodom that was wicked, where there were great sinners against the Lord. I told you that it damaged my relationship with my mom, but it damaged my relationship with my brothers as well. Because what would end up happening is the truth would come out, as it always does, and my mom got custody of my brothers, and I didn't want to be anywhere over there. I neglected these relationships. God worked through me. He transformed my life. He saved me. I am changed in unprecedented and unbelievable ways. What happened to my brothers? They were led to a land that was wicked. They were led to a place that I would have loved to have been able to be there, to share truth with them. I would love to, even today, have the opportunity to speak truth into their lives in a way that they would believe. But when they look at me, they do not see the the changed man. They see the person that they remember. When they look at me, they do not see a man of God. They see a deceitful charlatan that deceived them. And they went away to a land that was wicked, full of great sinners. And today, I have a brother who's a felon. I have a brother that has been in and out of rehab for drug abuse. I have a brother that I don't even know. You may think that's not my problem, that this isn't my responsibility, that I, I shouldn't carry some sense of, some sense of um, survivor's guilt for being pulled out of this kind of a life and into the life that I now live now. But they are my kinsmen. You open up your hymnal and you look at our church covenant, you will find that I have covenanted with all of you to seek the salvation of my kindred. That's not just in there by happenstance. It's not just in there by mistake. It's not just in there because it's something good to do. That's in there because we have a particular responsibility to the people that God has placed in our lives. As Christians, we have a particular responsibility to our family. We have a responsibility to care for them. And with the blessing that we have, that we have inherited from this very promise that God established at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we have a responsibility to share our blessing with those that God brings into our life. My family's falling apart. Today I stand before you and and I'm amazed at where I'm at and I I don't often share this because I feel like it's too much. I feel like it's too much to share. How do you like knowing that your pastor once planted drugs on somebody? Does it scare you? That part of my life scares me. It scares me when I read the Bible and I look at the promises of God and I I ask myself, 
Are you mistaken, God? When I ask myself, how much have I really changed? I look at these consequences and I, I wish that I could, I could save my brothers. I'm afraid that we look at, at verse 2 where we find these blessings of Abram. And we forget the consequences of our sin. I've given you three points so far. Lying sets us back spiritually. Unrighteous profit damages our relationships. Neglect leads to decay. Let me conclude with a fourth point. While God may not deliver us from the immediate consequences of our actions, God is always faithful to His promises. He is faithful to His promises despite human failing. This passage ends the same way that it began. Genesis 12 begins with God appearing before Abram and giving him this covenant. And then in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, the consequences didn't go away. The consequences weren't removed. Lot's still going to go to Sodom. Lot's still going to live among these wicked people. Lot's still going to be somebody that we revile for his decisions while he is in Sodom. But look at what God says. Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the ground, so that if any man can number the dust of the ground, he will be able to number your descendants. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I know that I am not the only person with shame in my past. Amen. I know that I am not the only person who has ever done things that I regret, and I know that particularly to be true when we consider what our life was like before we were saved and now. Let me contend with you one moment that if you cannot look back and see such dramatic transformation in your life, you may not be saved. Something happens to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. We go from a destitute position where we can justify such actions to a changed position where we are not just a redeemed person, but we are a new person, a new person in Christ. 
We cannot carry these things around as guilt. We must repent of them. We must acknowledge how much we need a Savior. We must be honest in our need for a Savior. And we must take heed to the promises of God that tell us, lift up your eyes from your sorrow. Arise, loved ones. Arise and walk with God. Because He has promised you salvation. He has given you new hope. He has made you something new. He can change you from the inside out. And you may look back on your life and you might say, how did you do this, God? But what we learn from this is that the God that has made promises to us, the God that has promised us redemption, the God that has come and appeared before us, pursued us and revealed His truth to us, is the same God that is faithful. We cannot take heed to the lies of the devil. We must say that God is good. God is truthful. God is righteous. God is gracious. Because I deserve nothing that I have. Abram deserves nothing that he received. I don't know what we did to get it. I don't know how God can be this gracious towards us. When I think about what I deserve, I I don't know how God could continue to love us. I'm so glad that I'm not God. Tell you the truth, when people betray me, when people hurt me, I'd like to count them out. When people refuse to get over themselves, when people continue to harbor bad attitudes, I want to rule them out. And I'll tell you a little bit more about my sinful self. Not only do I want to rule them out, I want to belittle them and make them see how worthless they are as a human being. I want them to see how despised and despicable they are because they do not pursue truth, but they live by their own self-sufficiency. And then I remember myself. A boy that planted drugs on his mom. A boy that broke into his friend's house. A boy that rebelled against God every chance that he got. Who now has a family, a wife, and two children. Who has brothers and sisters that I am working so hard to build relationships with, to build trust with, to, to let them know that I love them. That I might regain what I've lost that they might too be saved. That they might too might have this radical transformation. Think about how God has provided for me and how He's made these things possible, how He's given me opportunities. And I'm simply amazed. Are you amazed? Let me ask you that question again. Are you amazed by what God has done in your life? If you're not, you can be. The way to salvation is by honesty. 
The way to salvation simply means that we admit that what God has said about us is true. That man is totally depraved. There is no good in us. Admit that and believe that although you deserve sin, the punishment of sin, which is eternal judgment and damnation in hell, God has taken that penalty away from you. He didn't wipe it away. He's a righteous God. He paid it for you. He died on the cross. The song we sang this morning is the father turned his gaze away. He separated himself. And what that means in terms of the Trinity, I don't know. If you want to dive deep into that, I, I would encourage you to do it and let me know what you find out because it's, it's truly a marvel as the father turns away from the son. As we hear his cry from the cross, as he cries out, Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He has been gracious beyond all measure. He will not deliver you from the immediate consequences, but he will provide for you the way to restoration. Are you amazed by what God has done for you? If you aren't, the invitation is open this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for the way that you've moved in our lives for the way that you have convicted us of sin, for the truth that you have allowed us to be a part of. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning as we stand one final time to sing your praises and your glory, that our mind would not be on anyone else, but it would be on who we are in you, that we would come to you, Lord, with honesty and ask for your forgiveness and to be comforted by your grace. Father, I pray that if anyone does not know you, that they would come forward and receive your grace. Your grace that is greater than all of our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand with me this morning.